Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of having your word in our own language. We don't take that for granted. We pray, Father, that as we have that great privilege now of hearing your word, may you send your spirit that not only may we hear, may we understand, may we respond with your help. May we go from here rejoicing in Christ, we pray. Amen. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born again when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, and whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and will not come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth will come into the light so that it may be seen plainly what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Now it's fascinating that a conversation that took place 2,000 years ago between Jesus and Nicodemus should throw up a phrase that is in incredibly common use in our language today. Not so many years ago, Volkswagen spent millions of pounds in an advertising campaign to 
launch the rebrand of one of those, their most popular models. And they use this phrase as the centrepiece of that advertising campaign. Sports journalists love this phrase, especially to describe the revival of a failing team or athlete. In the media, this phrase is often used in a derisory term to dismiss right-wing fundamentalist supporters of Donald Trump. So, what is the phrase? Well, it is, of course, the phrase, born again. If you're a Christian here this afternoon, you may well have had a conversation around this phrase. A friend or colleague might well have said to you, are you one of those born-again types of Christians? By which they mean, generally, are you one of those keeny Christians who at best are kind of just happy, clappy and quite harmless, or at worst are a dangerous kind of bigot who ought to be silenced. That's the use of the term very often today in our world, isn't it? Well, with so many uses of the term whirling around, it's really good that we can go back and ask the author of that phrase, what exactly does he mean by it? And in many ways, this conversation with Nicodemus here in John chapter 3 revolves around that very phrase. And Jesus' insistence there in verse 7, you must be born again. Firstly, let's notice it's very up close and personal. You must be born again, he says to Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is the first of three people that John is going to introduce us to in the next chapters. In John chapter 3, it's Nicodemus. In John chapter 4, it's an unnamed Samaritan woman. And in John chapter 5, it's a man who's been 38 years uh, in, in, in a stretcher, basically, uh, severely disabled. And in so doing, in bringing these three people before us and recounting in some detail their conversations with Jesus, or more especially, Jesus' conversation with them, John is making a very important point. That regardless of your race, regardless of your background, regardless of your gender, regardless of your education, regardless of your class or your status in society, you need what he's come to earth to bring. It's a rather strange thing, though, that he should start with Nicodemus. After all, to all intents and purposes, he is the very last person you think would need a spiritual rebirth. He would definitely identify with Vicky. He would say, I, I don't feel what you're saying I should feel in terms of how God sees me. He has no obvious needs. As a Pharisee, it means he's a civic and religious leader. In that religious society, the Pharisees were at the top. A combination of the House of Lords and the House of Commons and the Anglican Church. It was that kind of place to be. I'm not getting at the Anglican Church, by the way. But here's a guy who's at the top of the pile. And though in the Gospels, the Pharisees often proved to be a very hypocritical, corrupt bunch who feather their own nest by exploiting the religious needs of ordinary people, Nicodemus is not like that. 
Nicodemus is an exception. He's one of the good guys. He's devout, he's sincere, he's honourable, he's generous, he's God-fearing. He's the kind of man that if you had one, you would love your daughter to marry. He's a kind of paragon of virtue. Very strange, therefore, that Jesus should say to that kind of person who would like to look up and to say, just want to live like that, you, Nicodemus, need to be born again. He's a man, though, who's intrigued by Jesus. He's open-minded, a genuine seeker after truth, which is why he comes seeking out Jesus, albeit, did you notice, under cover of darkness. Verse 2, he came to Jesus at night, presumably because he didn't want to be seen by any of his fellow Pharisees as associating with this man Jesus, whose card they'd already marked as somebody who was a troublemaker and needed to be eradicated. But actually, John wants us to see a little bit more than that. For in John's Gospel, you have this, this, this motif all the while of light and darkness. It's a very favourite theme in John. And John is making the point that Nicodemus is basically in the dark. He's in the dark. He's not only come to Jesus by night, he's actually in the dark. He's clueless, really, as to who Jesus is and what his needs really are. Rabbi, he says to Jesus, verse 2, We know you're a teacher from God, for nobody could perform the signs you do unless God were with him. Nicodemus, that's good, as far as it goes. But you don't go far enough. Nicodemus is about to be taken on a ride that will take his breath away and ultimately act as a catalyst for him to have a most wonderful, radical change in his life. Jesus' reply stops him in his tracks. Verse 3, truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus, unless they are born again. Now we might skirt over this, but the kingdom of God, this is the only time in John's Gospel that that phrase is used, which ought to set some kind of bells ringing for us. This is the only place in the whole of John's Gospel that the phrase kingdom of God is used. And what makes it so striking is that for a Pharisee like Nicodemus, that phrase was pregnant with meaning and hope and expectation. Indeed, it's what a Pharisee lived for, the kingdom of God. It encapsulated all their hopes, all their desires, all their dreams. The day when Israel's Messiah would come at the end of time to make everything right. For Nicodemus, kingdom of God, spoke of the future. When the Messiah would come, all that had been promised in the, in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, would be fulfilled at his arrival. On that day, it would be the end of all their problem. Which is why Jesus' reply to him is provoking him to think about this. And in fact, it's quite mind-blowing. You see, Nicodemus thought that his morality and his religious observance was enough to merit entry into the kingdom of God when it eventually came. That's what his life was about. He was waiting for the kingdom of God, but he had to earn it. 
He had to earn it by a moral life. He had to earn it by keeping all the rules. He had to earn it by his religious devotion. It's not so far from most of the religions in the world today, is it? The idea that somehow you earn your salvation. And what Jesus is saying here to Nicodemus, he's stopping him in his tracks. Nicodemus, you want to enter the kingdom of God, that's great. I know you want to enter the kingdom of God, but to do so, you need to undergo a spiritual revolution that can only be described in terms of a a rebirth. You must be born again. Nicodemus says, no salvation, no entry into God's kingdom without a new birth. You see, whilst Nicodemus recognised there was something special about Jesus, he'd been obviously sent from God. He says, nobody could do the signs that you do there. In verse 1 he talks about, unless God were with him. Nicodemus recognises that. But what he hadn't yet understood was just how special Jesus was. Remember when we started this, back in John chapter 1, in the prologue, indeed how the very beginning of John's Gospel begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory come from the Father, full of grace and truth. Nicodemus, the point is this, the kingdom of God has already arrived with the arrival of Jesus. If you could but see it, it's standing right there before you. You're talking to it. But you'll not know it or experience it until you're born again, Nicodemus. The point is, you may be the most moral, religious person in the world, or as we're going to see when we come to John chapter 4, the most immoral, irreligious person in the world. Doesn't matter. When it comes to entry into God's kingdom, none of those things count one iota. No matter how together we are, we must be born again. No matter how broken we are, we must be born again. Even a man like you, Nicodemus, shocking though it is, must be born again. Now, I don't know where you place yourself on that spectrum. Whether you feel yourself to be a Nicodemus or a bit nearer the woman of Samaria. It doesn't really matter. What really matters is that we realise that Jesus has come, that as individuals made in the image of God, made to glorify God, we might have an up-close and personal encounter with the Son of God, with God himself, and enter into his kingdom. So what he was saying to Nicodemus, he says to every single person and every one of us gathered in this room today because he wants us to know him. Think of the phrase, let's go on, let's move on. Secondly, notice how vital and urgent this is. You must be born again, Nicodemus. How does Nicodemus respond to that? Well, there it is in verse 4. 
Surely, he says, they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb. Now, it may seem at this point that Nicodemus is, is acting dumb, even being a bit condescending. I don't think that's the case. I think he's simply bemused. He, Jesus, you see, is talking in a category that is just beyond his understanding at this point. He can't make any sense of it. He believed in the kingdom of God passionately. He longed for it, but he thought it was exclusively in the future. So Jesus takes him on a lesson back into the Old Testament. Let's read from verse 5 through to 8. Very truly, I tell you, said Jesus, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. What's happening here is that Jesus is pointing Nicodemus back to the Old Testament and specifically to one of the big prophets in the Old Testament, Ezekiel. Come back with me, please, to page 868. 868 and Ezekiel chapter 36. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, this is primary school stuff. You're a teacher in Israel. You should know this. What has happened is hundreds of years before in the, in the history of Nicodemus' people, the Israelites, Israel, as so often happened, had turned their back on God. They had committed apostasy. They, they had given themselves to worshipping God's substitutes, to idolatry. They just rejected God completely. And yet, as is the repeated pattern in the Old Testament, nevertheless, God promised a restoration. God promised a rescue. And in Ezekiel chapter 36... And verse 24, God explains how this will happen. I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. See what he's saying there. I'm going to restore you, I'm going to rescue you. And it's going to involve life-giving, cleansing water and a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, Come back, please, to John chapter 3 and verse 5. What does Jesus say? No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the Spirit. Nicodemus, if you knew your scriptures as you should do as a teacher of Israel, none of this would be a surprise to you. You would know that what I'm talking about has been spoken of by Ezekiel hundreds of years ago. The promise, the necessity of a new beginning, of a new life, of a rebirth. 
And if you want to enter this kingdom, this kingdom of God, then it requires that God has got to take the initiative. God has got to do a new work in your life. It can't be brought about by your religious observance, by your morality. The problem is far greater than that. You have a desperate need before God, Nicodemus, and only God can meet it. You should realise that, Nicodemus, but you're in the dark. Most religious people are in the dark because behind all religion is that I can make myself fit for God. I can turn over a new leaf. I can go on a pilgrimage. I can fast my way to acceptance with God. God's got to be pleased with me. It's to not understand how perfect and sublime and pure God is and how in his sight our thought life, our intents that nobody else knows about are so filthy before him. And worst of all, our determined rejection of him to say, God, I want to be God of my own life. Thank you very much. And Nicodemus had to see that. You must be born again, Nicodemus. You must undergo a radical entry into spiritual life, as radical as when you were born physically. The fact is, says Jesus effectively to Nicodemus, I'm not a rabbi. I'm not just a teacher come from God in the way that you mean it. I'm far more than you bargained for. I'm the son of man. I'm the one Ezekiel spoke of. Jesus is always far more than we bargained for. We love to think we can package God up and put him in a box. But the Jesus of history, the Jesus of scripture, is far bigger than anything we could ever imagine. No one has ever gone into heaven to see what God is like. God has come from heaven to show us what he's like. That's the point that Jesus is making here. I've come to bring you the life of heaven now, here, starting on earth. In that regard, Jesus is the ultimate time traveller. The life of the future, eternal life that he keeps talking about all the way through John's Gospel begins now. It doesn't begin when you die. It doesn't begin the other side of the grave. It begins now. You must be born again, says Jesus to Nicodemus. It's a humbling message, isn't it? That in our pride, we find really hard to swallow. It took Nicodemus some time to come to terms with it. After all, he'd spent his whole life trying to make himself acceptable to God, fit for the kingdom of heaven. It's a devastating blow to be told that he couldn't do that, that he couldn't save himself. Some years back, I had one of the most wonderful experiences in church. I was, uh, at the church I was pastor at, I, was, I preached one morning, uh, and it was, it was basically this, this very thing, that none of us can make ourselves fit for God. We, we can't do that. A woman had a, a really interesting conversation with me at the door. She was really quite angry. Are you telling me, Trevor... Are you telling me 
that I can't get right with God by doing things. I mean, I try and help my neighbours. I'm, I'm known as a kind person. Are you, is that what you're saying? Happily, I had the retreat of saying, actually, it's not me, it's Jesus that's saying these things before she bumped me on the nose. <laughs> so I pointed to the fact that it's actually Jesus that says this. She was indignant. She was so angry. I'm never coming back again. She went away really annoyed. I went away heartened. And that's not being heartless. I went away heart, heartened because I thought, you've got it. You understand. Most people, when you preach the gospel, they come up and say, oh, thank you, Pastor, lovely, lovely message. You just told them they're going to hell if they don't come to the Lord Jesus and they're shaking you by the hand and thanking you for it. And you pull your hair out. This woman got it. She got it big time. And when you get it big time, that's often the start of God being at work in somebody's life. Better that reaction than platitudes. This is a traumatic time for Nicodemus. And by this time, all he could say is there in verse 9, how, how can this be? How can this be? How can I be born again? It's a great question. In fact, it's the question. The question of life. How can I be born again? Now, Jesus has already again spoken about this at the very beginning of John's Gospel, back in chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. If you want to flip back, do so, but I'll read it to you. In John 1, 12 to 13, he says this, To all he received him who believed in his name, speaking of the Lord Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, being born to a mother who loves Christ doesn't make you a Christian. Born not of human decision, nobody, nobody has the power to make you a Christian. Nor by a husband's will, but, see what it says, born of God. Born of God. You see, new birth is something only God can give. It's all his doing. It's a supernatural work of his Holy Spirit in our lives. It's the greatest miracle seen on earth today. If we're a Christian, we often miss that point. We can be distracted by the thought, well, if we're not a Christian, we might be distracted by the thought, well, if I saw a miracle, if I saw somebody being healed, if I, if I saw somebody being cured, if I, if I saw whatever, then I believe. The biggest miracle is new birth. The biggest miracle is somebody who was dead toward God being given life. Somebody for whom the light of God was out to be brought into that light. Somebody who was running from God to be brought to him. New birth is the great miracle of the New Testament. Because without it, we will not see God. But when a person becomes a Christian, and if you're a Christian here this afternoon, this has probably been your experience. For the first time in your life, you begin to see things. You know when a baby is born for the first time, they see and hear the world around them. And it's magical. 
And when you become a Christian, you begin to see and hear the words of Jesus in a way that you've never done before. Recently, I had the joy of a guy that I've known for 25 years coming to the Lord Jesus. He rang me up one day and said, Trevor, I'm having trouble with my prayer life, which was something of a shock for me because uh, Ollie was not known as for his spirituality or his prayer life. So, oh, that's interesting, Ollie, tell me about it. So we met up. God was at work in his life. We started to look at the Lord's Prayer to see what prayer was really about. Within a few weeks, God had done a work in his life that was so evident that he'd become a Christian. He said to me, Trevor, why have I never seen this before? Why have I never experienced this before? I've read the words, but it made no difference. I said, Ollie, there's only one answer to that. You've been born again. God has done a work. It's his decision when it happens. It's his initiative. It's all down to him. It's his timing. He said to me, what, what about, why didn't he do it 25 years ago? I don't know, Ollie. But he's done it now. And life will never be the same. That's what it's like, isn't it? A babe is brought into the world and everything is new. You hear and you see. You touch and you feel. When you become a Christian, that's what happens. Heaven above, says the hymn writer, is softer blue. Earth below is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue. Christless eyes have never seen. You look out on the very creation and you marvel at it in a way that you never did. You talked about, oh, isn't nature wonderful? But now you say, isn't God wonderful to make a sunset like this? Or a mountain range so vast and enormous that I'm reminded how minuscule I am. God's at work. It's a fabulous thing, isn't it? And it's all the work of his Holy Spirit. New birth is nothing less, this is the marvel, than the life of God in the life of a man or woman. An ordinary man, an ordinary woman, the life of God. Can you imagine that? But that's the miracle. It's new birth. So how do you get it? How do you get it? If this is something that God initiates, if this is something that he brings about, does it mean that I just have to to wait, to sit, and to hope that one day he might zap me? That one day I'll be born again? Well, that door is closed off to us in the final part of John's, this, this passage that we're looking at. There's one thing you need to do, says Jesus, and it's there in verse 13 of 14 of chapter 3. He says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus brings this conversation to Nicodemus to a climax by citing an incident again in the history of the Israelites, back there in Numbers chapter 21. Just one final cross-section. Please come with me to page 158. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, Nicodemus, there's something you must do. There's a part you've got to play. And it's back there in Numbers 
chapter 21, page 158. Let me tell you the story. The Israelites are on a journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. It proved to be a very long and arduous journey for the simple reason they kept rebelling against God. They kept grumbling, as the Bible puts it. They kept saying, I wish we hadn't come out. Life was so much better. Fed up with this this bread, this manna, this quail. Day after day after day, more manna, more manna, more manna. They began to think that it wasn't worth it. They began to think that God had brought them out into the desert just to abandon them. They began to mistrust him. It got to a point that their rebellion was so audacious and outrageous that God decided, in his mercy, to pull them up in their tracks. And he did that by sending some venomous snakes amongst them. I don't know about you, but I hate snakes. And with that, there's going to be people in this room who love snakes, so you can come and tell me after all about that. But they give me the gym jams. (laughs) Well, here's these snakes. Can you imagine? We're talking here about probably two million people, a huge, vast army of people on the move through the desert, very, very slowly. And then these snakes are let loose venomous snakes and they start getting bitten and they start dying in fact they're getting bitten left right and centre and they're dying left right and centre and they're utterly powerless in the face of this snake venom of course being Israelites the snakes are meant to remind them of something it's meant to jog their memory it's meant to remind them of their history their history that's rooted as all our history is in our first parents, Adam and Eve. And that account in Genesis 1 to 3 of another snake, the serpent, personified as as a snake, coming to tempt Adam and Eve, coming to bite them with the venom of rebellion against God. And with it, sin and death enter the world. The snakes would have undoubtedly reminded them that we've been here before. The snake bite was the bite of death, physical, spiritual. They were being forced to face up to the consequences of their rebellion against God. But in the middle of it all, and in the middle of the desert, God shows incredible kindness to them. And it all focuses around a massive pole at the centre of the camp, upon which a replica model of a snake was erected. Not quite the height of the shard, but it would have to be pretty high because what they would have to do, you see, this is how they were going to get the cure. If you got bitten, how did you get cured? There it is in verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake, put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. How do you get cured? By looking, looking at a snake on a pole in the centre of the camp. 
No fasting, no pilgrimage, no special prayers, but look. I can imagine something like this going on. Isaac one day gets bitten and, and, he, and his, his, his friend Moses comes to him and says, Isaac, you can get cured, you know. I say, it's okay. It's okay because Miriam has thought up a cure and I'm going to try that first. No, no, look. Isaac, all you've got to do is look at, get outside the tent, get outside your tent. Look, there he, look, look on the pole. Just look at it. No, no, it's okay, Moses. I'll do it my way, if you don't mind. Can you imagine that going on? I thought that may have gone on. Because the last thing we want to do is do it God's way. <laughs> Such is our heart. And all they had to do, you see, that's the thing. Some of them were so near death that all they could do was look. But when they looked, miraculously they were cured. Now says Jesus, Nicodemus, you know that story. You know the story. Let me tell you. I'm going to be lifted up. Not on a pole, but on a cross. Come back with me to John chapter 3, please. I'm going to be lifted up, says Jesus. The Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. See, Jesus is pointing Nicodemus forward to something that's going to happen in just a short while, in his death on the cross. Only Jesus can give birth to this new humanity. Only Jesus can live the perfect life to be the offering for our rebellion and rejection and sin against God. Only Jesus can bear his righteousness before God and give it to us as a gift. What you got to do? Look. That's all you got to do, Nicodemus. Look. Or as he puts it here, believe. It's another way of expressing it. Believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, put your name in there, that whoever believes. Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only beloved son that if you, Nicodemus, would believe in him, you would not perish but have everlasting life. It's as simple and as profound as that. And a year or so after this encounter, Nicodemus did that. He was around when Jesus was crucified. How do we know he was born again? Well, we know it from an incident that tells us in in John chapter 19. You needn't turn there. But in John 19... Nicodemus and his friend, a man called Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, go to the Roman governor, Pilate, and ask for the body of Jesus. What's significant about that? This is what's significant. Anybody identifying with Jesus at that point was putting their life on the line. The disciples didn't go and ask for it. They were hiding away for fear of the Jews that they were next in line. But something so profound had happened to Nicodemus that he was ready to forget about his status, his position in society, so encapsulated and engrossed with the Lord Jesus and captivated by him that he made this bold, courageous decision to go and ask Pilate for the body. And he takes the body 
and they lay it in the tomb and they anoint it with the spices. Why did he do that? Because he had looked and believed. He'd seen that at Calvary, God had done for him that which he could never do for himself. It's all there. It's all there. What about you, my friend? If you're a visitor here, if you're not yet a Christian, it's a joy. I'm so delighted that you're here. I don't think you're here by chance. You're here because God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that he he wants you to be able to put your name in there. He wants you to stop running. He wants you to know the joy of a new life in Christ and the hope of heaven and the entry into a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. He wants you to know what he has created you for, to know him and enjoy him forever. And you need to look to Christ. It's all you have to do. No religion, no saying, oh, if only I did this. None of that nonsense. I look to Christ. Just down the road from here, there's a very famous church. It's called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. It's famous because of a man who was a preacher there. His name was Charles Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And back in the 19th century, literally thousands of people would make their way to the Elephant Castle to hear Spurgeon. For many decades, he preached at that church. Thousands of people became Christians. Orphanages were set up, care homes, all sorts of social action resulted from it. Where did it all begin? One day, when Spurgeon was just 15, it was a winter's day, and he was going to church out in East Anglia. It was very snowy. And he couldn't go to the normal church, so he, he, he just stepped along the way and found this little primitive Methodist chapel. He went in. There was only about eight or ten people there. And in fact, the preacher, who was due to come, couldn't get through because of the snow, so one of the poor deacons had to preach. And Spurgeon says, after ten minutes, he ran out of things to say. He had the text. The text was, all you nations, look unto Christ, which Spurgeon says was rather funny because there's only ten of us talking about all the nations. But having got to the end of his ten minutes, he looks at Spurgeon and he says to him, you look very unhappy, young man. Spurgeon says, I wasn't used to be addressed like this from the pulpit, but I was indeed very unhappy. I had no joy of salvation. I didn't know I was right. And you will always be unhappy, young man, until you look. Look at Jesus on the cross. Look at him hanging there, suffering from you, for you. Look at his blood running down, shed for your sin. Look at him in the empty tomb. Look at him risen from the grave. Look at him ascended into heaven. Look, man, look, look. Spurgeon said, I did. I looked. I looked and looked. I could have looked my eyes away, he said. That's one 15-year-old boy who looks. No wonder this was a favourite, favourite passage for Spurgeon. Look. You see, that's all you have to do. And Christian here, this is not only how we become a Christian, This is how we live the Christian life. Because to look is to believe. It's to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We spend our Christian lives looking. Whenever we fail, 
we look. Whenever we sin, we look. Whenever we doubt, we look. Whenever we've lost our way, we look. Whenever we know we've messed up big time, we look. Whatever temptation threatens to overwhelm us, we look. That's how we journey on. There's no magic formula. We look to Christ. How we begin the race is how we continue the race. It's how we finish the race. As Hebrews put it, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The one who was there at the beginning, at the inception, the one who was there at the finishing line to welcome us into heaven. There's life for a look. Nicodemus discovered that gloriously, wonderfully. Ever since, over the 2,000 years that have ensued, tens of thousands and even millions of people have discovered that. You must be born again. Let's pray. Father God, we are amazed that you should send your only begotten Son. When we think that you send the darling of heaven to rescue people like us, we're overwhelmed. Father, we are moved to the very core of our being. We are humbled to the dust. But you do that in order to raise us up, that we might be born again into your kingdom. And Father, this afternoon, if we don't yet know you, Lord, may we, like Spurgeon of old, look. Look to Christ on the cross. God so loved the world that he gave his only beloved son. May we look to him for salvation. May we look to him for forgiveness. May we look to him for acceptance. And Father, if we know you, teach us every day to look to the Lord Jesus. Father, we admit that our eyes are so easily distracted upon other things, other people, some of them really good, legitimate things, some of them bad, but all of them ultimately distractions if they stop us looking at you. So help us to help one another to look to you day by day and help us to know the joy of sins forgiven, of a hope of heaven and that one day faith will give way to sight. We pray this in the Saviour's name for his glory and for our good. Amen.